Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. People incarcerated in Oklahoma State prisons aren't receiving adequate meals, according to the prisoners. The Department of Corrections lists a typical meal as containing eight ounces of turkey rice casserole, a half cup of mixed vegetables, a dinner roll, one slice of unfrosted cake, and one cup of a fruit drink or tea, but prisoners say they receive mostly starches in insufficient amounts. The Department of Corrections spends about 75 to 85 cents per meal per prisoner. To compensate for the state's recent dearth of revenue, legislators cut the department's budget by $24.4 million in 2020. Cutting expenditures on food for prisoners is a way the department saves money. The prisoners say they remain hungry if they don't supplement their meals with canteen purchases, but penniless prisoners have to obtain food from wealthier prisoners by doing jobs for them, such as doing laundry and making beds. Prison canteens offer junk food and only a couple of healthful options, such as a 13-ounce package of mixed vegetables for $1.15 and a 7-ounce can of corn for 97 cents. The meal situation has deteriorated since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Portions have been getting smaller, are served late and are often cold. One prisoner said that one day she received lunch at 6pm and dinner at 9 Companies such as Boston Dynamics and Nightscope are marketing robots to law enforcement to read license plates, track cell phones, and report so-called suspicious people. Criminal Legal News says, quote, The robocops are presented to the public as benign and fun. Many resemble rolling trash cans. They can dance and let you take selfies, end quote. The robots are constantly gathering and recording information. Some 100 robots made by Nightscope are used in shopping malls and grocery stores, on neighborhood streets and at other public locations. The robots contain infrared cameras able to read license plates and wireless technology that can identify smartphones within their 500-foot range down to the MAC and IP addresses. As Criminal Legal News points out, it's unclear what information the robots use to decide to report as suspicious activity. Do the machines monitor skin tone? The darker the skin, the higher the suspicion? And we are all aware that the police merely responding to a report of a suspicious activity often results in the killing or maiming of unarmed, innocent civilians. Prisoners at Idaho State Prison started a riot on Saturday, April 10th, which included setting a fire and attempts to break windows in the housing unit known as H-Block Tier 1, which holds nearly 100 prisoners. Five inmates were transported to a Boise hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The incident began at 4.30 p.m. when guards responded to an assault in H-Block. Soon after, prisoners started destroying property and lit a trash can on fire. 
The fire forced an evacuation of staff and dozens of inmates at the minimum and medium security facility. While the protest was only in one housing unit, the Boise Police Department, Ada County Sheriff's Office, Ada County Paramedics, and Kuna Fire District all responded to quell the unrest. Though IDOC has referred to those events as a disturbance, such incidents are generally considered riots when inmates are able to take control of a portion of a prison for a significant period of time. Prison riots are uncommon in Idaho, although one occurred at the maximum security prison in 2018 and another at the state prison in 2009. Two researchers who conducted a study for the Prison Policy Institute that attempted to answer the question of how much of an impact incarceration had on COVID-19 caseloads in local U.S. communities as the pandemic spread over the summer of 2020, found that from May 1st through August 1st of that year, nearly 567,000 infections could be traced to jails and prisons. The estimate greatly surpassed the number of cases reported inside jails and prisons, which the Marshall Project estimated as about 68,000 during the three-month period. Prisons and jails were the source of 13% of all the infections the country added during those months. The study found that counties with higher concentrations of incarcerated people had more COVID cases than those with lower concentrations. It also found that the mere presence of a prison or jail in a county resulted in higher rates of COVID infection in the local community. As Prison Legal News pointed out, quote, among numerous reasons to reform America's criminal justice system, the report now adds a significant public health rationale, end quote. On January 26th, President Joe Biden signed an executive order to re-establish President Obama's policy of phasing out the use of for-profit private prisons to house immigrant detainees. States around the country are attempting to end contracts with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, at their detention facilities. As an example, in March in Maryland, a county executive instructed the county detention center to notify ICE of its intention to terminate its contract. The same month, the Maryland House of Representatives passed the Dignity Not Detention Act, which would terminate ICE's contracts with the state detention centers in two counties. The state Senate has yet to vote on the bill. Advocates say the actions result from years of intense grassroots effort. A history of abuse and medical neglect in ICE-contracted prisons has spurred advocates to push to end contracts. Mike Adams, legal director of the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project in Washington State, said detention in private facilities is particularly odious because it places profit over people's rights. This week, we share the second part of a conversation between Garrett Felber and Nicole Siegel. Felber has been on the show before, discussing the Nation of Islam and its relationship to the origins of the modern prisoners movement. His new book, Those Who Know Don't Say, The Nation of Islam, The Black Freedom Movement, and The Carceral State, is an important contribution to this history. In our episode this week, Nicole and Garrett introduced the role of the scholar-activist and its tenuous relationship with the university. Garrett organizes with the Study and Struggle Program to fight against criminalization and incarceration in Mississippi, understanding that study is a moment of political struggle. Here they are. 
how does the subject of your research, which we've just been talking about in the form of this book, relate to your organizing? You are a scholar activist, as they say. Tell us about the organizing work that you do. And in particular, could you please talk about study and struggle? Yeah, absolutely. So study and struggle is sort of the most recent thing I've been involved in. It was a chance to kind of work through some things that if we're thinking back to our conversation in 2018, just some different aspects of my organizing, because so much of it has revolved around trying to support radical study groups inside prisons. So it really started with liberation literacy, which was exactly that, a radical study group at a minimum security prison in Portland, still exists to this day. So it's sort of, I've just been working through these many questions about how to both support those type of study groups inside, what inside-outside organizing looks like and outside inside, you know, just sort of that process of building a really robust movement. When we were both in Cambridge in 1718, you organized a major conference. Can you tell folks a little bit about that? So that was called Beyond the Gates. And we were really trying to get Harvard at the time to invest in courses inside for folks. And something that actually grew out of that over that summer was this idea about sending books inside to a host who could sort of then be supported and host their own group. So that that kind of grew out of, I was working with that Harvard undergraduate group, Hope, and we were doing a program there that supported these groups across the country by sending sets of books to a host and, and different other folks. And I think one of the, the deep trappings of formalized higher education and prison programs is that you, you're working between two oppressive institutions. You're sort of the interlocutor between the prison and the university. I think study and struggle, especially if we get to the sort of what happened with study and struggle in the University of Mississippi, it came out of and continues to come out of my grappling with my role, the role of people in higher education between those two institutions. Every stage of your academic work, grad student, fellow, tenure track assistant professor, and onwards, you've just been tirelessly organizing so many different kinds of projects. I think I am in the process of continually learning and, and shifting. It, this gets back to the thing that I said about being creative. I think it's just really about trying out different things um, and finding new avenues wherever you are. Because there's just a, there's infinite variables, right? With every institution that you're at, with every group of people that you're organizing with. So I think we just have to be really nimble as organizers and thinkers to that. I arrived in Oxford, Mississippi after our year of fellowship and had already sort of begun organizing this second conference. So if anyone's thinking ever about organizing two conferences in two different places at the same time, I would strongly urge you not to do that. So I so I'd already started thinking about what became Mumi, making and unmaking mass incarceration while we were doing Beyond the Gates at Harvard. That took about two years of organizing and took place in December of 2019, which is a little over a year ago, but feels like a decade ago. In the summer leading up to Mumi, I also started something that was called the Parchment Oral History Project, which was a collaboration with a couple of students from Harvard, a student from Tougaloo College, and a couple of students at University of Mississippi. Over the summer of 2019, the students recorded about a dozen or more interviews. The broad theme was incarceration in Mississippi. We tried to narrow it to a specific historical moment in 1970, where there were a series of mass arrests of student activists in Mississippi. So the three that we focused on was a high school desegregation campaign in Charleston, Mississippi, and actually something that came out of your book. It was a, like a one or two sentence 
piece about the 800 students who were arrested at Mississippi Valley, which remains the largest mass arrest of students in U.S. history. And I remember seeing that note and asking Stuart Schrader about it. And we were both like, what is going on with this? So we interviewed students who had been arrested as part of that Mississippi Valley case. And there's now actually a graduate student at University of Mississippi who's doing her thesis on that. We made a documentary film. Oh, and the third arrest was at the University of Mississippi. And it was 90 Black students, which at the time was about half of the total Black enrollment grad and undergrad at the university. And they... The 90 Black students arrested were half of the African-American students at Ole Miss in that moment? Yeah. Essentially what happened was students had formed the Black Student Union. The year before, they were making demands, some of them incredibly basic demands, but you have to, you know, remember the context, this is less than a decade after Meredith and the desegregation of the university through federal troops. So many of these students are sort of part of the first classes of Black students to ever graduate from the university. They protested, they disrupted a performance and went on stage and threw up the Black Power Fist and came out and were arrested by state troopers. And there were several other arrests that night as they sort of went around campus, just rounding up Black students. Some of them were taken to Parchment and some were taken to the county jail. And and what year was this again? 1970. Actually, what's interesting is they were not formally arrested. Many of them spent two nights and some spent one night. But part of it was that they they never formally arrested and booked them. So what they did was they rounded them up, they took them to Parchman as sort of, you know, to terrorize them. Then what came out of it was that eight students were singled out and expelled. That was February of 1970. And we did these interviews the summer leading up to the 50th anniversary of this arrest. We sent invitations to all of the students who were arrested that year to bring them back to the chapel where they had protested 50 years earlier Wow. Um, For a program that was framed around reparations and what would reparations from the University of Mississippi for the arrests, for the racial terror, for the expulsions. We found the FBI file. The FBI had been surveilling the BSU there. And some of these students, so of the eight who were expelled, five came back, plus their attorney who represented them at the time. He also came back. We had a panel discussion with them. We showed this documentary film, which the student who I mentioned earlier um, put together. And we also had the disciplinary hearings from the expulsion, which was really incredible testimony from these students at the time um, who were facing this expulsion about why they did what they did. And we had sort of an intergenerational theatrical performance of the disciplinary hearings with both the students, some of the students reading as themselves 50 years later, and some current theater students reading other parts. And one of those students, Lenny Liggins, now Lenny Willis, she was in her senior spring when she got expelled. She had all of her credits. She's gone through 50 years of life, never receiving her diploma. She had always just had to use her transcript to prove Uh that she graduated from the university. So she came back and um, received her degree at that event. So that suggests quite a strong degree of the University of Mississippi cooperating and supporting this work. I definitely said, we're doing this thing. And how would you all like to participate in this? I said, essentially, we're bringing back these students. We're inviting them. How would you like to collaborate on this? One of the outcomes of this was that there is a, I don't know if it's a task force or a committee or what the, the name is, but it's a reparations committee to both study what happened that year and then also make recommendations. And there are people like Lenny and some of the other family members of those who were expelled are on that committee. So I'm really proud of that work of, you know, someone like Lenny, who she had not been back on campus. She was from Oxford, Mississippi. She was the first Black resident of Oxford to go to the University of Mississippi. 
and yet she had never returned to campus in 50 years. So the fact that she's willing to put in time now, 50 years later, to a reparations committee means a lot. I mean, even just to get the idea that you could look for and find and invite the eight students who had been expelled or some more of the people who'd been arrested. And then to turn it into a theatrical performance and to have the university participate to the point that it awarded Lenny Willis her degree, amazing. You are the latest in the long tradition of victims of the state of Mississippi and the University of Mississippi's policies of silencing dissent, aren't you? Yeah, a good, long, proud tradition. Yeah, you should be proud to be in that tradition. <laughs> Tell us what happened as you were pursuing this magnificent work that you've now told us a good bit about. So the Study and Struggle program came out of the conference. The MUMI conference, as I said, was December 2019. Just a fantastic gathering of about 400 folks in Mississippi to talk about prison abolition. One of the things that came out of it was, you know, interest in supporting movement infrastructure in Mississippi. The other thing that sort of happened historically in this time between the summer of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 was one, the largest ice raid in U.S. history happened in August of 2019. Then beginning in late December of 2019 and early 2020, the eruption of Mississippi prisons and the spate of deaths that totaled nearly 100 in the span of the year of 2020. And this is not even taking into account COVID deaths. This is just absolute miserable conditions in Mississippi prisons. So is that a usual number of deaths for Mississippi prisons or did the conditions get significantly worse or was there just all of a sudden the light shone on them? I would hesitate to say that this was an exceptional thing because I think every few years there's this, you know, national attention on Mississippi prisons and then it sort of quiets down. So it's it's by no means anomalous, but there was an incredible moment to organize around it. And one of the things that we had done, I'm sort of also just remembering the Mississippi Freedom Letters project that I partnered on with Pauline Rogers. So one of the things that we did in early 2020, around the same time that we were organizing this reparations event was start this campaign to write every incarcerated person in Mississippi. And we got about halfway, I think uh, we wrote over 10,000 letters. Through that process, I got more connected to Pauline, who's formerly incarcerated, has been doing tremendous transition housing work in Mississippi for nearly four decades. What did you write in those letters? I mean, you can imagine to write that many letters, it basically just took people all over the country getting letter writing groups together. We had a template, but it was mostly just letters of support and love and letting people know that they were not forgotten and that people were supporting them and also to let prison officials know that we're watching. And mm -hmm. yeah, that was mainly the, the goal. So yeah, Study and Struggle is primarily a political education program around kind of those twin crises around ICE, immigration detention, and prison abolition. We spent most of the time over the summer of 2020 constructing this had a political education committee that came up with the curriculum. Our shared comrade, Michelle Jones, was part of that. Yeah, so we put together this curriculum that launched in fall, and it was basically about a dozen study groups in Mississippi prisons participating, as well as people across the country and the world who could host groups as well. And then we had a pen pal program, which connected those sort of across walls. And every month we would host a critical conversation, which sort of framed the themes for that month. That was through a partnership with Haymarket Books. And then we would print off those transcripts and send them to people inside um, so they can kind of participate in what is essentially, you know, a web-based format. And then uh, we financially support all the study groups inside monthly. So they have food and materials. 
and you and that's sort of big grant from Mark Zuckerberg's big foundation, right, <laughs> to support study and struggle. And this this organization had also helped to fund MUMI, the big the big conference in two thousand nineteen, right? Am I getting? Yeah, that? yeah. So our 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 friends at Forward US in Mississippi um, have been really supportive in both the conference and study and struggle, which I really appreciate because I find it generally very difficult to find foundation money for political education. It, it allowed us to get that program off the ground, which is really it takes a lot of money to do translation work, to do all of this. So we had received this grant from Forward US over the summer. And then we were also in the process of getting a grant from the Landon Foundation, who's been really supportive as well. And, you know, without getting into like too much nitty gritty, that's kind of boring. Essentially, yeah, the chair of my department rejected the second grant from the Landon Foundation three days after the university had published in its sort of like donor pamphlet, an article okay. documenting the, the Forward US grant that we had received and the study and struggle program. So there was this kind of dissonance between, you know, on one hand, the university saying, look at this amazing program that we're doing. And then on the other hand, them rejecting the grant and saying, you know, you, you should take this project elsewhere. Forward or Lanham wanted to give you $42,000. And it was for a project that the university had previously celebrated and had been supported already by major foundations. And then your chair said, I'm sorry, no, we're not going to let you accept this amazing amount of money to support your work. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's very strange and very rare for a university to forbid its faculty member from accepting a grant. I mean, particularly for a project the university already knows well and has itself supported. It's a little bit schizophrenic in there somewhere. So the thing that I that I did, which kind of leads us to this current moment, is I publicized this on Twitter. And one of the things that I said in that thread um, that I think you're pointing out is, you know, there's a little bit of sort of like one hand not knowing what the other is doing, which is common at these institutions. And then there's another hand of sort of power happening, right, about who determines what the university should be pursuing and, you know, what's considered political and what's not. I'm just reliving all sorts of stuff from my time at University of Mississippi here. But the thing that I neglected to mention is my opening remarks at the Moomi conference ended with talking about the Charles Overby Center, um, which is a named center on campus with money from a donor who's given over $5 million to the university and is on the board of Core Civic. Oh, so okay. part of the context for you know, my termination and all of what we're talking about, about what's considered political work, is that I was very publicly critical of the university's direct ties to private prison money. This is what all universities are, right? They're these completely dissonant places where you have a criminology department and, mm -hmm. you know, people making technology for the military industrial complex and those of us teaching about police and prison abolition right. and what the university sees as political is what we do and what they see as apolitical as munitions. I mean, it is interesting that you just backed up to this fiction of the university, which is something that we, you know, you just pointed out. It's the right hand knoweth not what the left hand doeth, but in fact, it's an octopus and none of the tentacles know what the other tentacles are doing. And yet I do think there's a there there that you can say things like the university supports this or doesn't eventually, once you back up far enough to see the whole. In, in that way, it's like the state, right? And so it's useful for those of us who are thinking about state violence. How does state violence happen? How does the state act as an entity when it's made up of so many different competing pieces? And so the university too, how does the university operate 
to quell dissent and to be an agent of repression, even when it has so many moving pieces, lots of which are trying to move in the direction of abolition. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the state because one of the things that my comrade Kim and I have talked about is how the, the university is the state. It's an arm of the state, right? So especially at a place like University of Mississippi, it's yeah. so imbricated in state politics and actors and literally is a state institution, but also, you know, I think in terms of power acts as the state. And to your point about the defining the sort of like the state, which is always, I think in your book, you talk about how it always overflows the cup uh-huh. of its definition. So I, I, that's been really helpful for me in thinking about all of this too. Well, since we're talking about the state, I wanted to ask your opinion of something that the Washington Post brought up. So there's the article about you on December 22nd of last year. And that article, as we've already done, it places you in this long and noble tradition of targets of white Mississippians' wrath, alongside several Ole Miss faculty members, including James Silver, who is, like you, professor of history. And Silver had written in a book, Mississippi comes as near to approximating a police state as anything we have yet seen in America. I'd love to hear you think that through. As someone who's interested in police and policing as I am, I think you probably might have some interesting takes on that. What do you think Silver meant? I think, let me just start with the sort of problem of Mississippi, of talking about Mississippi, (laughs) which is that it, it plays this exceptional role in the minds of people outside of Mississippi so well. I mean, I have that, that article called Shades of Mississippi and the discursive work of that phrase, Shades of Mississippi, which was being used to talk about the people that we started our conversation with, incarcerated people at Attica. Yeah, Mississippi has always represented the worst in American race relations and American racism. So exactly. So in, in a sense, it can be exceptionalized, but it's also then representative. Right. Like if, if Shades of Mississippi can be used in the 1960s to describe Attica, it's not just exceptionalizing, it's pointing to the similarities. The thing that I found vexing about Mississippi and, and that I always try to point out in conversations about it, especially outside of the state, is which Mississippi are we talking mm-hmm. about? Because there's a real, and in a sense, this is true everywhere, but I think Mississippi makes it stark. There's a war going on. There's a power struggle happening and you see it on campus and you see it in communities across the state. And I can speak most to most on campus because to be frank, I was only there three semesters. It's kind of hard to believe. It is very visibly divided between who these actors are. Yeah. So certainly, yes, police state, but again, not uniquely a police state. You know, I was, I talked to Khalil Muhammad when I first moved down to Mississippi and had just left you all at Harvard from that year. And the way I described it was sort of- Khalil um, Muhammad is a, uh, our fellow historian, a professor of history. And um, he was, at that point, he was faculty in the Kennedy School, right? Yeah. And a former Indiana University a former, professor. A former colleague of mine in Indiana. And also he was the head of the Schomburg Museum for the years in between. Yeah. So anyway, I, I was just sort of reflecting when I got down there on the relationship of what I was seeing to what I had seen at Harvard. And I sort of described it as almost like a circle that when you go around it, they touch, if that makes sense. Maybe that's too esoteric to grapple with. But I'm that, not seeing it. That, that they're almost so far apart, they, they touch. That essentially they have the same commitments to white supremacy and empire and all of these things, but they have such dramatically different orientations to it and languages and sort of ways of articulating that. So that, that was to me how I was sort of understanding, I guess my own transition between those two spaces, but I think might help us think about like how Mississippi can act both as representative and exceptional, that it's, it's a different 
orientation to a lot of the same structures of power. We'll have links to our previous episodes with Garrett Felber on our website, kitelineradio.org. And we'll share more of this conversation on our show next week. Stay tuned. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.